0: Everybody, good to see you all here tonight. It's always good to be together. We missed you last week when the young adults had their fellowship. How many of you are here for the young adult fellowship? What? What happened to the rest of you? Y'all are missing out. I hear it's great. Oh, good. Our brother from England was here. So I'll introduce this table back here. is from the motherland, England. All y'all can wave to us. They are uh, from... Horsham, England, we have for 20 years as a church sent small groups on mission trips over there. And they've done outreaches over there and they have uh, welcomed them and taken care of them, kept them in their homes and opened doors for outreach. And so we've had the opportunity to have them here this week and we're hoping that we'll have more crossover. So hopefully it won't just be the college that go over, maybe next time we can take senior adults over there, right? Or a mixture of senior adults and young adults. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So, last week, from Sunday afternoon until Tuesday afternoon, we had our annual staff retreat, church staff retreat. We worshipped. We heard great teachings. We were challenged to dot a self more fully, which is includes what we're looking at tonight. It was also mentioned that we don't want to be just a disciple making church, which Highland is becoming, that's becoming part of our identity in the city, that we are a disciple making church and we praise God for that. We've prayed for that. We're so glad to see that. But it was also said that we need to be and we want to be a church that makes disciples that make disciples. We want to make disciple makers. We don't want to just stop with a bunch of disciples. We would like to train a whole multitude of people to be disciple makers. where Everywhere they go, they're looking for people to invest in and to disciple in the ways of the Lord. So, of course, we're praying all that for all of you and for us as well. We all want to be disciples, right? But we don't want to stop there. We want to obey the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, to be a disciple making people individually and corporately. So um, we are praying that you and we will be strong, committed disciples of Jesus ourselves. That means we'll all be grounded in the Word. We'll know how to pray the Word. We'll have effective prayer lives. We'll live godly lives. And then we will be disciple makers where we invest God's Word, His life, His will even into the lives of other people. If we will prepare for the harvest of souls that we believe is coming in, if we will prepare for it. God will faithfully send us a harvest. So we don't just want to stand by and see people come into the kingdom of God and then we don't know what to do with them. We want to be ready so that when the next harvest of soul starts coming in, we have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people equipped to start making disciples. So some of you may have heard that last night here on our campus, we had 1,100 college students that were here. And it was four different college ministries in the city of Waco that came together at Highland and had a joint gathering together of worship and the word and so forth. There's already prayer into what God wants to do next year on Baylor's campus. There's already a lot of prayer into Waco being a a city of discipleship culture. And we all want to be part of that. You know, people come here from all over the world to go to the silos. Wouldn't it be great if people came here just to hear about Jesus? That they heard that Jesus lives in Waco and they want to come be a part of what Jesus is doing here. They come here just to be discipled. They give 3 to 6 to 12 months of their life to live in Waco so that they can be discipled in Waco. Wouldn't it be great if we had prayer ministries and healing ministries? That people knew they could come here and be healed physically, emotionally, mentally. They could go back a changed person, alive with the Spirit of God, ready to do everything He's called them to do. Wouldn't that be great? That's our prayer. That's what, that is what's heavy on our hearts. The Lord did not bring us all here for such a time as this for us just to relax. You know, none of us are going to retire. We're all going to go out in a blaze and then just step right into the kingdom of God, into heaven. Alright, so tonight we're looking at Matthew 5, 5 and we're going to quote together Matthew 5, 1 through 5. So if you will join me I know you might have a little bit different versions. That's okay. Let's all talk real loud over each other. Okay, so let's start in Matthew 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, so tonight we're looking at the meek that inherit the earth, and before we get into it, we're going to sing happy birthday to Lauren Blake. Happy birthday, Lauren. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Lauren. Happy birthday to you. So glad you were born, Lauren. Glad you're part of our lives. So to be meek is to be humble, patient, gentle, and submissive. Humility is the chief characteristic of godliness. It's the foundation of all the other beatitudes. Jesus described himself as meek and as a servant who came to do his father's will, not his own will. Meekness is controlled strength. Uh, And let me just step in to say you can try to follow me in your book. I won't exactly follow it though. I've kind of had fun with my own notes here. So, to be meek is to be self controlled, but it's not being a doormat, it's not submitting to abuse. It's not being passive in the face of evil. That's not meekness. Meekness is being yielded to and led by the Holy Spirit, standing up for what is righteous and good and pushing back against what is evil. It's speaking up at the right time under the unction of the Holy Spirit. What we don't need are a bunch of passive believers that watch evil encroaching in more and more and do nothing about it. To be meek means we choose God's will instead of insisting on our own rights. It's the opposite of a grabbing spirit, a vengeful and resentful and angry spirit. It's the opposite of an attitude of entitlement that we see so much in our Western culture. We need to have the attitude that no one knows us anything. It's a great attitude, right? No one knows us anything. Everything we have is a gift. Salvation's a gift. The air we breathe is a gift. Our relationships are a gift. Our health is a gift. If we have that attitude, that will help us to cancel debts, to forgive others, not just the person who ran into our car last week in a parking lot, not just the friend who unfriended us on Facebook. It also means forgiving parents for years of neglect or abuse. It means forgiving authorities, employers, siblings, spouses, children. Some of you need to forgive children. Some of you need to forgive your parents. When we are hurt or offended, we choose to forgive and we follow that forgiveness with the thought, you owe me nothing. This has helped me so much in being able to keep a clean slate and forgive quickly. When someone hurts me or offends me, right away in my mind, I forgive them I say, you owe me nothing. I don't need to get revenge. I don't need to get even. I don't need to explain myself. I don't need restitution. You don't owe me a thing. And then I pray blessing on them. Lord, bless them. Bless their finances. Bless their families. Bless their work. Bless everything they put their hand to. Bless them, Lord. And I stay free from offense and bitterness that way. So that phrase, they owe me nothing or you owe me nothing. That's a it's a good key phrase to use as you're trying to walk out forgiveness. In God's kingdom, we don't hold on to grudges. We don't get even. We don't offend and we're not easily offended. We give up the attitudes of I deserve this or I deserve to be angry or it's my right to get even. It's my place to say my position on this. We give up even our right to our own opinion and expressing our own opinion. We're dying to self. That's what happens in God's kingdom. We take up our cross and we die to ourselves. That's meekness. That's the whole picture of meekness. We humble ourselves to seek reconciliation when there's a damaged relationship. We don't wait for people to come to us. We go to them. That's what Jesus said. He said, if anyone sins against you, you go to them. And then he said, if you sin against anyone, you go to them. It's always on us to go to the person to seek reconciliation. In God's kingdom, there are no comparisons and there's no competition. We don't need to compare your gift against my gift. Someone's talent against someone else's talent. In fact, it says in Corinthians, if we compare ourselves with each other, we're not wise. It's not a wise thing to do. And if you ever notice, the word competition is not in scripture. There is no such thing as competition in the kingdom of God. We're all on the same side. We all want to get to the kingdom together. We want to make sure no one lags behind. We don't leave anyone behind. This is a team sport, and we're all on the same team. Isn't that fun? I love that. The words that should describe us in the New Covenant are words like trust, love, relationship, interdependence and harmony. We prefer one another. We look out for the interests of others. We look for ways to serve. This is all part of being meek. This is all part of being humble. Trusting God is the key to humility. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 9. We're going to read verse 10. Psalm 9, verse 10. says, and those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name, those who are intimately acquainted with your name. It's the Hebrew word shem, and it means your person, your nature, your character, your reputation. Those who really know you, they are acquainted with who you are. They will put their trust in you. They know you're trustworthy. They know that you have not forsaken those who seek you, and you will never forsake those who seek you. So we could paraphrase that to say those who know your nature, those who know you personally, will trust you. They find it reasonable to do so because they know you. They know you intimately. They've experienced your faithfulness. When we really know the Lord, not just know about him, not just hear him preached on Sundays, not just read a few good books about him, but when we really know the Lord personally, we hear his voice, we know his will, we know his ways, we know the scriptures. When we really know him, we will trust him. We'll believe that everything he does is motivated by love. When we trust him, we easily submit to him. We trust his plans for us. We trust his promises to us. We trust his character, his motives. His priorities become our priorities. We love what He loves and we hate what He hates. And we begin to align ourselves with Him. And that only begins to happen as we get to know Him personally. We don't align ourselves with Him when we only know Him from a distance. It's when we know Him intimately, personally, that we start that correct alignment of righteousness. One of the downfalls of those who serve the Lord um, is that they're too busy doing kingdom work and they don't spend enough time with the king. We need to be careful that we have enough time with Jesus. Don't ever substitute ministry for your own time with Jesus. Don't even substitute family for your own time with Jesus. Jesus needs to be number one. He needs to be our first love, our first priority. Don't substitute anything else. Don't let anything become an idol. As we fellowship with the Lord and we're hearing his voice and we're talking with him, we're having this rich communion with him, we become more and more gentle, more humble. We grow in wisdom. We are taking on his likeness. If we are intimately acquainted with Jesus, who is meekness personified, we will reflect his nature of humility. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we're going to read verses 3 through 8 first, and then we'll read on 9 through 11. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. I want you to just see all of the definitions of humility and meekness here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that means having a humble mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. That's preferring others. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind or this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, But he made himself of no reputation. That's humble. That's meek. He took the form of a servant. That's humble. He came in the likeness of men. After the splendor of heaven, he left all that. He came in the likeness of men. He couldn't humble himself any further than that. Being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, Because he humbled himself like that, therefore, for that reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things on earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So humility preceded his exaltation. And there are people that want to climb the ladder of success and they want to be someone important and they want others to notice them, they want to be recognized, but they have not humbled themselves. They're trying to lift themselves up. So I wanna say again, humility precedes exaltation. We need to lower ourselves like Jesus, humble ourselves to be servants, humble ourselves to take care of others And esteem them as better or more important than ourselves. And and that doesn't mean to look down on us, it just means to look higher on them. Jesus humbled himself to obey his Father even to the point of a brutal, humiliating, painful death. And God responded by exalting his name above every other name. The humble are willing to obey God no matter what the cost. Whether it's ridicule, rejection, or persecution, humility requires strength and courage. It's not being weak to be humble, it's being strong, it's being courageous, it's being bold in the face of opposition. Humility makes a strong stance, doesn't push their own will forward, but will speak under the unction of the Holy Spirit into situations that require them to speak into them. So we see a deficit of obedience in the church written to in in Revelation 2. We're going to go there. I'll remind you what we're doing. Each beatitude matches with a church in Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. So the first beatitude, the first church was missing missing that beatitude. The second beatitude, the second church was missing that beatitude. This is the third church and it's missing the beatitude of meekness, humility that leads to obedience. So let's go there, Revelation 2. And we're not going to read the entire letter to the church of Pergamos. We're just going to read a few verses. Revelation 2. I'm going to read 12 through 14. So not only were these seven churches missing the seven Beatitudes... But God himself is is exemplified in the Beatitudes. God himself is poor in spirit because he's always giving himself away. God himself mourns. He mourns our sin. He mourns the conditions of the world. God himself is a suffering God. And the church in Smyrna did not want to face suffering again. And so that matched that one. And now Jesus, as the Son of God and as divine himself, is the perfect example of obedience which is what this church was lacking. So let's start in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Historically, Antipas was the first martyr in that city. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So I just want to break this down a little bit. In verse 13, Jesus commended this church for their faithfulness, but in verse 14, he reproved them for idolatry and immorality, which were the doctrine of Balaam. So the story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22 through 25. You can read that yourself. But basically, Balaam was paid to curse the Israelites. And when he saw that God would not let him curse his people, he knew the only way for Israel to come under a curse of failure was for them to disobey God. Once they yielded to pride and immorality, they would be susceptible to failure in battle. The Israelites lusted after the Moabite women. And soon they worshipped their gods. And as a result, they came under God's judgment. This was Balaam's scheme. He knew God's people could be drawn away and enticed by their lustful desires and that their compromise would result in their defeat. So Israel's strength was dependent upon her obedience to God. When the Israelites were meek and obedient, they had victory in battle. It's the same with us. That's why it's important for us to look at this. Because out of the Lord's love for us, he will confront the sin and worldliness in our hearts so that we can repent and live victorious lives in him as obedient, humble children. When we resist the Holy Spirit, we resist his conviction, we walk in compromise, we walk in disobedience, we develop lousy attitudes and carnal attitudes, we hang on to those, we live defeated lives. We are not victorious in battle. And the battle, as you know, is intensifying in this day. And we need to walk in victory in the situations around us so we dare not allow sin or compromise or worldliness to have a foothold in our lives. We need to be free of these things. So let me ask this. Is there anything between you and the Lord? Is there someone you haven't forgiven? Is pride your downfall? prize the downfall of most people is it something you wrestle with has it led to immoral thoughts or immoral behavior james 4 6 says god resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble we all need grace so we need to humble ourselves before god so that we can receive that jesus said in john 5 44 how can you believe you who receive honor from one another and you do not seek the honor that comes from God only. In other words, how can you have faith in God and depend on Him when you are looking for recognition and honor from men? T.S. Eliot wrote Humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. Pride causes us to seek recognition and glory. When we are humble, we affirm others, we encourage them, and we seek God's honor and God's glory. We're not looking for who is noticing us. We're looking for whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. The mantra of today is, it's all about me. It's all about me. My sister just sent me a link to two of her grandchildren. One is four and one is three. And the four-year-old is standing there saying, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And so then the three-year-old climbs up on the beam next to her and says, it's all about me. Of course, she doesn't speak that clearly. It's all about me. It's all, and they're both saying, it's all about me. And I'm horrified listening to that. I'm thinking, okay, it's cute. But they're learning early that it's all about them. And that's what we don't want kids to grow up feeling. Because the problem is we get to be our age's. And we think it's still all about us. We think life is about us. It's about our comforts. It's about our happiness. It's about what we want to do with our free time. It's it's about what we choose in life. And yet it's not all about us. It's all about Him. All of our lives are about Jesus. We live for His glory. We live for His pleasure. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his glory. It's all about his honor. He's the majestic king. It's his name that is above every name. It's at his name that our knees will bow and our tongues will confess that he is Lord. One of our main disciplines as believers is the discipline of prayer. And we've heard a lot about prayer. We're about to hear a whole lot more about prayer because that was one thing that was spoken about at our retreat. We want to be a house of prayer and we want individually to be houses of prayer. All of us should be walking houses of prayer. We want every ministry to be a ministry of prayer. So humble people know their need of prayer. And they will engage in prayer because they know they need God. They know they can't do anything apart from Him. As it says in John fifteen five. You can do nothing apart from me, Jesus said. So humble people know that. They know they can't do anything without the lord so they are deep people of prayer they know their families won't make it if they don't pray they know their children and grandchildren won't walk with jesus if they don't pray they know their neighbors may never come to faith in the lord if they don't pray they know that laborers won't be sent to the harvest fields if they don't pray and so they take prayer as a as a personal possession and it drives them it's not just a discipline and a duty It's become a delight. It's become a major part of their lives. They love to pray. And they love it when the Lord responds. And they have this dialogue with the Holy One of Israel. It's amazing. We should all have a prayer life like that. That's not just for the famous people. That's not just for the big evangelists and the prophets and the apostles. That's for all of us. We all need to be men and women of prayer When we don't pray, we are showing our independent attitudes toward God. We're showing that we can live without Him, that we don't need His strength, we don't need His wisdom, we don't need His counsel. We can do ministry by ourselves, we can do our life by ourselves, we can do our marriage by ourselves, we can raise our children by ourselves. Can you hear the futility of that? We can't do any of that without Him. We need the Lord. We need His wisdom and counsel. Therefore, we need to be people of prayer. And humble people will avail themselves to this discipline, to this gift that God's given us. We're going to do business with God tonight before we go into our small groups. We're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to kneel if you're comfortable kneeling, if possible, at your chair or to come up here and kneel around these stairs. We prefer to call it the altar. And let's search our hearts. Do we need to confess pride before God? Do we need to ask God to forgive us of pride and to abroot it out of our lives? Don't just say, God, I'm sorry for my pride. I confess it. Say, Lord, I repent of pride. Well, you uproot it out of my life. I don't want this in my life anymore. This stinks. Get this pride out of my life. I don't want to be self-serving. I don't want to be self-centered. I want everything about me to be focused on you. So you might want to do with pride at the altar. You might want to confess sins of willful disobedience where you've chosen willfully to compromise or to disobey. You know the Lord told you to do certain things. You didn't do it. You might believe that there's some worldliness in your life that you need to confess where you love comfort or you love material things or pleasures more than you love Jesus. You might want to confess that tonight. Ask for his deliverance, for his healing, his freedom. You might want to confess a lack of private prayer, a lack of private worship. You might want to confess Jesus as Lord again, because you realize he's been your Savior. You've walked with him as your Savior. But is he your Lord? Have you repented of sin and turned the management of your life over to Jesus and proclaimed he is Lord? We are not, and it's all about Him. Today in our morning staff devotions, we sang this chorus. You'll recognize it. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. That's a prayer of a humble person, a meek person. Lord, my life isn't about me. It's all about you, Lord. Live your life in me. Have your way in me. So let's spend a few moments in prayer. When I say a few, we may be here five to ten minutes in prayer because you can't really do business with God in in like thirty seconds. So let's let's seriously spend some time before the Lord. You know this. If if you've been involved very much with Jewish things, you will know this, and if you haven't been, then, then I will just tell you. The way God has set things up, when there is a feast of the Lord, when there is a serious, solemn assembly of the Lord, he hears the prayers of his people in a whole different way. It's like there's an open heaven. And in Israel, we knew that. The Jews know it, the believing Jews know it, the believing Arabs know it. And as believers, we are wise if we will press into God during the Feast of the Lord. He always hears us, but there's a difference. There's an open heaven. There's like a portal that we can get through in a whole different way during a Feast of the Lord. Well, right now on the eve of Yom Kippur, this is a time when the Lord's ear is inclined to us. Let's take advantage of that. This is a gift because we are grafted into the olive branch, the root of David, the olive tree, the Jewish people, we're grafted in. And we, we get the blessings that they give us, we get to share their patriarchs, we get to share their Bible, we get to share their Messiah. We also get to share the feast of the Lord and the blessing that comes when we interact with him during the time of feast. So we're just ending the 10 days of all when the Jewish people have been searching their hearts for any sin in their lives And now tonight and all through tomorrow, they will be fasting and praying and recommitting themselves to the Lord. They'll be forgiving people. They'll be seeking God's forgiveness. And it's really good that we do that too. So let's do that now. Let's pray.